it was hard to change jobs 20, 30 years ago. You actually had to look for a job. You had to send a resume. You had to get on the phone. You had to talk to people. And now everybody thinks you can do that without ever talking to people. And I'm going to contend you've created a problem that should never have existed to begin with. And that to me is the two problems. We think it's a easy solution and we can do it uh, transactionally. And it's actually a hard solution. We have to do it strategically. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. Today, we're learning with Lou Adler. Lou is an accidental recruiter. Does anyone say to their careers teacher that they want to be a recruiter, I wonder? Anyway, some of the best recruiters I know are accidentally in recruitment. So Lou was an engineer working for a Fortune 500 company in Southern California. He went there from New York for the weather, but hated his boss. And so often, that's why people leave. You go to all of the trouble of hiring great people and then you lose them because they weren't a fit with their hiring manager. So we talk about how do you fix that? Lou and his team hired 1,500 people whilst they had a search firm. Now, now he has a business that teaches firms how to do recruitment using his high-performance hiring methodology. But back then, he hired 1,500 people most of whom got to the end of the first year and said, I'm glad I got this job. And the hiring manager said, I'm glad I hired this person, which is not my experience in most firms. So we talk about how to make that happen. Lee's got some great questions you could just put straight into your recruitment process tomorrow, this afternoon, depending on when you're listening to this. And we talk about why you should certify, why people leave, Maybe how to get the fit right, how to hire for fit, cultural fit rather than for skills. So I've done a lot of recruitment and I learned loads from Lou this afternoon. I hope you do too. Hey, hi, everyone. My name is Lou Adler. I've been coerced into talking to this guy, Dominic Monkhouse, with a name that I can't even figure out where that came from, uh, to talk about hiring and business strategy and how to have a successful life and uh, how to hire great people and how to not to screw up uh, making important business decisions but I've been around in the hiring industry for 10, 30, 40, 50 years and still doing, still at it. So I uh, look forward to talking with everyone here today. Lou, it's, it's absolutely fab to have you on. Why do people still get recruitment wrong? 40 years ago, there was talk that the war for talent was going to be won because we had the internet we have job boards, companies were bringing in-house recruiters in, and we could hire people quickly. 
I, at that time, thought that was not going to happen. The study was actually a McKinsey study about the war for talent, and hiring was a strategic issue. And the idea was that all these tools would make it easy. 20 years later, 20, 30 years later, nothing's really changed. Uh, we have job boards. Uh, we have uh, all these tools, LinkedIn, SeekOut, some great tools. But job satisfaction hasn't improved. Employee engagement hasn't increased. We still make stupid mistakes uh, for a variety of reasons. And I'm going to contend the real reason is we have too short-term focus as opposed to a long-term focus. We hire for the start date, not for the actual work and the career opportunity it could present. And number two, making that maybe the root cause of that is we've made it easy to change jobs. It was hard to change jobs 20, 30 years ago. You actually had to look for a job. You had to send a resume. You had to get on the phone. You had to talk to people. And now everybody thinks you can do that without ever talking to people. And I'm going to contend you've created a problem that should never have existed to begin with. And that to me is the two problems. We think it's a easy solution and we can do it uh, transactionally and it's actually a hard solution. We have to do it strategically. Do you think about that there's different types of people that you're trying to attract, you know, and that actually the people you want are already in jobs and aren't looking at job boards? Is that? that you hit it right there. I mean, I look at hiring when you get strategic as three buckets of hiring. One bucket is entry level and high volume, uh, lower level positions, call centers, uh, transactional sales, entry level people. Uh, and then another, which is not unimportant, but the goal of that hiring there is to minimize mistakes and hire at scale. Another group is what I'll call critical hires. These are mid-level managers, important technical people who have two to three years experience and up to mid-management. That's much more of a high-touch process because the best people are already fully employed. But you can use it a little bit, uh, a combination of technology and high-touch. Then you have what I call strategic hires. These are your vice presidents, your senior leaders, people who have a strategic impact on the company. That's 100% high-touch. And people try to make those serious decisions with superficial and incorrect data. And you can't apply a high-touch process in a high-volume process. So a lot of people use the wrong strategy or use the wrong process uh, based on a different strategic hiring need. And when you mix and match those and think you're going to get there properly, you just won't get there. So you have this all this noise factor and you have all this difficulty getting there. So it's how do you align your strategy with the process that you're trying to do? And most people get that wrong. And so what do you try and persuade your clients to do? Have you got a client where you think, oh, if I just clone them, like they've, they've taken everything I know and they've, they've done it all. Anyone done it perfectly? It might not even be a current client. It might be a historic client. Do you it's have a hard of- to do perfectly. And this is what I was mentioning. I had somebody talk to me the other day. He said, Lou, what's your biggest success? Or what are you most proud of? And what are you, what's your biggest failure? I said, I'm really proud that performance-based hiring is a process that allows companies to hire outstanding people for the long term. We call it win-win hiring. Our goal is to hire people at least for the anniversary date. We're a successful hire on the anniversary date after they've been a year, a year. The hiring manager says, I'm so glad I hired that person. And the candidate says, I'm so glad I took this job. Getting there is very, very difficult. Most people hire for the start date. 
what's my title, what's my comp, what's the location. Uh, and they negotiate all the stuff around the start date, but that has nothing to do with driving uh, personal success or on-the-job performance. So to make the decision long-term, you have to do different things. So now I'm going to give you a story. Uh, so I know you talk to mid-sized companies, Dominic. And it just happened probably 20, 25 years ago. I don't actually remember. But I had given a talk to a business group. At that time, it was called Tech, the executive committee. Now it's called Vistage. And the company was a $20 million U.S. company. Uh, that would be equivalent to 40 or $50 million now. And they made wood products. It wasn't furniture, but related to that. And I had actually been to where I made the presentation was at that company. It was in Southern California. And the president calls me, and I, at the time, I was a full-time recruiter, but giving presentations on performance-based hiring. And he calls me and says, Lou, what were those two questions you gave us that I had to absolutely ask for every candidate in that presentation you made 60 days ago? And, I, and the guy was desperate. I said, well, what's the job? He said, I'm looking for a VP operation. So I said, well, let me come up there, and I'll to meet you and we'll talk about the job. He said, I can't, just give me the questions. Give me the questions. He was, give me the questions. Give me the questions. Uh, and I said, why are you so, I, you can't, the questions don't mean anything unless you know what you're looking for. I said, why are you desperate? It just doesn't make any sense. He said, because the candidate's outside in the office. I said, oh, wow, I understand. I said, well, and I kind of remember Going through where the meeting was, we took a little tour of his building. So just coincidental that that was the guy who called. I said, here's what you do. I don't remember the president's name. Don't, ha don't meet in the office. Go out in the factory and take a tour of the factory. And I want you to stop at each section where you think you have big problems. He said, in fact, tell me what some of the big problems you have in the factory are. So he said, well, one is we got a lot of scrap. Our machine are down half the time. We crap out. And I, I probably 10 to 15% scrap. He said, what else? He said, well, our inventories are all across the board. We have some in the left corner, some in the right corner. And it wasn't a huge factory, 100,000, 150,000 square feet, uh, but big enough. I said, so here's what you do. Have a tour of the factory. Stop at every area you think you have a problem where you want this person to solve and ask the candidate two questions, and I'll give you the two questions, but you have to ask them in the context of the problem. He said, the first question is, hey, describe your problem and ask the candidate, if you were to get this job, how would you figure out a solution? You don't have to give me the solution, just how would you go about figuring out a solution? And then ask the candidate, what have they accomplished that's most comparable to implementing that type of solution? And I said, then stop at the scrap problem, stop at the warehousing problem, stop at the procurement issue, stop at the distribution center, whatever you've got, because uh, he had all these problems. And it takes about 15 minutes on each problem, and then call me in the afternoon. So he calls me that afternoon. He says, Lou, what well, else? Cool questions are great. The candidate was great at telling me how he would solve the problem, but he never solved anything similar. So the guy, I concluded the guy was a great consultant but not in a great, certainly a smart, capable guy, but not an operations guy who can get out in the field and get hands dirty and do it. Can you come up? And I came up and we walked the tour of the factory. We summarized that, which I call a performance-based job description or a performance profile. And once you know what the work is that the person needs to do, you only need to ask two questions. One question is, hey, what have you done that's most similar to this? And if you were to get this job, how would you solve it? And you don't have to give me an answer. I just want to know the steps you're going to use to solve it. 
So it's the process of thinking through problem solution and the ability to uh, implement those kinds of solutions. We did, he did hire a fellow from us. Now the guy met all the achievements and we did achieve a win-win hiring outcome, which means that the anniversary date, hiring manager says, I'm glad that person did all that work. And the guy says, I'm so glad I took this job. So that's the essence of uh, hiring in a nutshell. And doing that at scale takes some work and effort, but it can be done. I think that those two questions are um, very powerful. So often I see people, the candidate turns up, the person's got the CV, but the people who are doing the hiring haven't agreed beforehand what the problem is. They haven't agreed, you know, it, it's just a mess. And they end up hiring the least worst person they interview or the one that nobody particularly didn't object to. And, it, and thinking about it at the anniversary date, again, I think is really powerful. What do you reckon how, in, in normal, if people aren't using that process, what, what proportion of people get to the end of the year, do you reckon, and aren't phenomenal? Well, let's just to give you a sense. Let's say my, as it, when I had a full search form over 20 years, 1,500 placements, four or five of us. Only 75 of those people didn't make it through the full year. Only 75 left. So that's pretty cool. Now, I won't say that of the, uh, let's say, the 90% that um, stayed were all perfect. But I would say 75% of the 90%, so let's say, uh, were, were achieved win-win hiring. Uh, yeah. But if you don't define the work, it won't get there. And the real reason why people underperformed, even though 75, had nothing to do with ability. It all had to do with, did they fit with the company? Did they fit with the hiring manager and the style? Uh, so I even look at, let's assume five, uh, five or 7% left and another 10% didn't do as well as they uh, could have, but didn't underperform. When we talked yeah. to those people, it was always, I'd say maybe two people weren't smart enough to do it. That's so easy to figure that part out. Are you smart and capable to do it? It was fitting with the hiring manager and that style and the company culture and the pace of the organization, all those fit factors, the context of the job are what really drives performance. And if you don't have all those other pieces together, you get the person's life, it's problematic if the person will be successful or not. And I think that it probably makes it easier for the A player to decide whether this is the company they want to join you know if you're asking me questions around the problem and i can tell you that i've solved it and here's what i've done before i i now know whether i can take this job and be successful at the job whereas so often you know people get interviewed and they don't know if they should take the job because they don't really know what the company's going to you want them to do <laughs> i think you just hit and we'd actually tell candidates uh Ask about the job. If you feel vague, just uh, ask, what, do you, what are some of the expectations for this job? And I'd like to give you some examples of work that I've done that are most related. And that's what I find fascinating. It's not just the fault of the company. It's the fault of the candidate. They all say, I want to, I'm looking for a career move. I say, well, tell me the criteria you use to determine if it's a career move or not. The title, the competency, you don't know anything about the job. So it's not just incumbent upon the hiring manager and the interviewing the company to do this. It's incumbent upon the candidate to ask these questions. And you just hit it right there in the head, Dominic. A good candidate would ask those questions. I love those two questions because I can add them to my list. Uh, I, what I tend to do is I tend to say to clients, look, what, what are the three to five things that we're going to measure so that a year from now, 
we, you know, we can say at the beginning to the candidate, this is how we're going to measure the, your success. And what's the number that excellence looks like? So that when we're interviewing and if it's a sales guy, it's like, you know, we need you to sell X at this margin and you need to build a pipeline of four X. And it's, this is what it is so that the candidate can go, I can do that or I can't do it. Right. But not often, not often until pushed, the companies haven't even thought about not, you know, what is the problem or even what does success look like? Right. I think you hit it right there. What does the problem or success look like? And when you go into companies to teach them, what, what are they hoping or what do they see as their... You know, like, see, they're looking for silver bullets. Uh, <laughs> all these great people hidden around this corner who are just waiting for this great job, and I don't need to discuss. They're just great natural people. They just think it's an easy solution, and they look at it as now sourcing. There's a lot of companies that offer sourcing tools. Oh, I got ZipRecruiter. I got Indeed. I got this LinkedIn. I can find great people there. That's just one step in the process. How do you convince that person to talk to you? How do you assess that person? How do you close that person? Because now you're a great person. They go back to their company and say, I'm thinking I'm leaving. And they say, oh, pay you 10% more. Okay, I'll take that. I'll take the 10%. Most people on both sides of the desk focus on the the start date package. How much money I get, what's the title? And they don't even think about the work that they're going to be doing Month one, month six, full year. And our whole focus when I talk to candidates is I say, candidate, don't make long-term decisions using short-term data. Don't focus on a start date. Yeah, that's part of it. But it's what you're going to be doing over the year and where you're going to go year one, year two, that's really going to make you successful. But getting people to think about hiring and a long-term decision makes no sense to me. Everybody thinks about it on what they get on the start date. How big is the package? What's the title? Do I like the company? Is it cool? And all this other due diligence they have to do to make the right decision seems to um, not be as important. Intellectually, it's important, but when they actually do it, they don't know how to do it. They, it's all a lot of gut feel. What, what gets in the way, do you think, of you know, because, you know, you, hear, you and I are having a conversation about this. We agree vehemently that this is the right thing to do. What? stops people doing it like this is it because human resources hr is such a broad thing and so you know recruitment specialists in mid-market firms are are very rare is it that it's really like a sales process and and often people who end up in hr you know they're sort of often the the opposite of sales people i think it's a combination that hr doesn't think about hiring strategically that's one issue. So the tools that they provide their hiring managers are substitutes and they get bought into the idea that, hey, this is an easy transactional process. On the flip side, hiring managers don't feel that they're being measured on the quality of the people they hire. So if they're not measured on, they say, oh, hiring is real important. Yeah, well, are you is one of your performance objectives as a manager to hire great people and achieve win-win hiring outcomes? No, I just have to, I know it's important. But if they don't get dinged for not hiring and they all, well, hire, I have too much to do. I can't hire people. HR has got to hire people. No, the hiring manager. So I think it's, they haven't, people, although they give lip service to hiring, which is all the things you've said that it's important. The reality is they, they always have excuses for not doing it or they try to implement this new competency model or they got this new tool that will solve all their problems. And it's a big, it's a more complicated solution than that. I mean, it's, in my mind, uh, it's, a, it's almost a capital investment. You're hiring an engineer. 
engineer in the United States, three to four years is probably making a hundred thousand uh, dollars with overhead. That's one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. A person stays two or three years. That's almost a hundred three four hundred thousand dollar investment in that person. Uh, and then the impact of that person is probably three to five times greater than that. When you look at that, that's a capital investment. That's not a that's not an expense. And I think people think about hiring as an expense. No, it's a capital investment and you have to have some kind of equivalent. Hey, if I'm expending that kind of money, I should have it in a, a, a process that everybody agrees to. And this is what we're going to use to do it. And it's got to be the right process. It's got to work. Um, so that's where I that's where I said earlier, I'm very proud at some level that I figured out how to do hiring. What I'm not proud of is I haven't been able to convince a lot of people. It's it's a very touch, you know, hands-on. It's not as easily as scalable as I would have liked. So that's probably the disappointment. But and a yeah. lot of variety of reasons. People don't have that sort of data, do they? I mean, off you know, it's very rare going to an organization and it's like, how many people did you hire? What's your success rate? You know, are you happy with them at, at 12 months? Well, actually, there are studies around that. Gallup does a lot of work on employee engagement and employee satisfaction. And you look at their engagement studies over the last 30, 40 years, and it's definitely in the United States and Europe, it's pretty dismal. You know, a third of the people are totally satisfied, a third are somewhat satisfied, and a third are dissatisfied. And it has, those numbers haven't really changed much over the years. And you look at it, with all these new tools and the billions of investment made, thing, the needle hasn't moved much. And I look at it and say, why is that? Why is the needle? And I think it's because of too much short-term thinking, too much transactional thinking. But then on the other hand is once we've created job boards, which allow people to instantly apply. And I oh. still on LinkedIn, I get letters every day. Hey, you're great for this job, for this job. I mean, we've uh, – so people reward job changes. These companies are made to change jobs, uh, designed for people to have turnover. So once you've added all these extra people applying, now you got to figure out tools to get all the unqualified out of it. So they've created this industry that's very successful for the vendors, but reality is it hasn't moved the needle on improving quality of hire. How much of the hiring do the hiring managers have to do? Do you have to meet your boss, if you're a candidate, can HR just do the whole thing? Oh, I, don't, I wouldn't do it. I mean, do you think any A-level talent would take a job without meeting? I mean, let's take a, for a high volume position. So my background is engineering. My first engineering job 50 years ago, I, I live in Southern California now. My, I went to school, engineering school upstate New York. I get a call in, from Southern California in the middle of March and, hey, we'd like to make you, make you an offer to a systems engineer. Uh, and I said, what's the weather? And it was 15 yeah. degrees and snowing where I was, Fahrenheit. And uh, I, he said it was 72 degrees. And I said, I'll take that offer. I mean, literally, so when you're, you know, it was a good company and the work was kind of, so the decision when you're entry level is different. I don't think you need to meet your boss. But when you start to getting these critical hires, you know, two to three years, staff engineer, you're good. Uh, you're going to be a mid-level manager. How could you possibly take the job without meeting your boss? This is your whole career is at stake. First job or two, not that critical. But once you're in the in labor force for a year or two, that boss and that situation, that work is going to define your rest of your life. Uh, and for a strategic hire, company executive level position that impacts or director of sales is going to impact tens of millions of dollars. How could you not want to meet your boss? 
it would make no sense. So I think it's situational. What's the type of hire and what's the process you need to find those people? And it's not one size fits all. And I think that's part of what companies think they can come up with an easy process. I don't think that was your question, Dominic, but that was my answer. No, no, but, I, but I'm also intrigued because I've, I've had some people in the past who worked for me. And honestly, they they couldn't hire to save their lives, you know, left to their own devices they would hire the wrong candidate in a pool of two consistently every single time. Like, how do you, and, and of course <laughs> they don't like that having pointed out to them, but the data was, the data was obvious that kept hiring people and firing people. And, you know, it wasn't the pool of candidates. I don't think the pool of candidates was, was necessarily poor. They just, just weren't able to pick the right one. How do you, how do you help them? So let me kind of rephrase it. Would any company, ever put a salesperson in the field without that salesperson understanding how to sell the product. They would have to be totally trained. I mean, would any accountant go in the field not learning accounting? You just engineering, you just but yet in hiring we think anybody can do it. So the one idea is how can you possibly hire people without being certified to hire people and being trained to do it and earning some certification that you do it well? Well it's interesting because I th- I think I think that sort of accountancy and engineering, you know, you take qualifications, there's, there might even be some sort of annual professional development program. Sales, now sales, you know, you can talk a bit, okay, we'll give you a sales job. And so many salespeople that they don't get any training at all on selling, you well, know, they know sort of companies that would put their, let you sell a product without training and we, we, we work a lot in sales uh, and help companies hire sales reps. But I think the idea of a hiring manager, I think they have to be trained to do it and they have to be handheld until they're good enough. Amazon has what they call a raising the bar committee where the hiring manager doesn't make the decision alone. Uh, they make the decision as a team. And we really believe we have a tool uh, it's called the talent scorecard, and we conduct panel interviews, and we debrief around the panel interview uh, and the scorecard. And that actually is helpful because people hear all of the evidence to make the decision. So in some way, we don't let the hiring manager make the decision alone. Uh, we have a process where some due diligence goes to play, and we organize it so that they make the right decision more times than not. But the kind of the hiring manager also says, no, you're, you're responsible for making this one-to-one hiring. You know, it's, if the candidate doesn't make it, you're going to be dinged if that candidate doesn't make it in the course of the year. So all of a sudden, the hiring manager says, oh, I got a responsibility here for this being successful. So they tend to take away the superficialities and start doing some real due diligence. Yes, I think that hiring committee, Google do something similar. And I remember, you know, that's one of the ways we scaled our recruitment process at Pier 1 was – having a group of people who would because the hiring managers often feel under pressure you know i've got a vacancy the team's busy we're growing 20 percent 30 percent 100 percent got to fill the seat and without without that third party validation from somebody who doesn't feel the pressure your your hiring can go down the toilet quickly it's also easier to say no because that's safer no i don't want it don't want send me more candidates no um so part of it is, is that they don't know what they're looking for. They said, okay, I want someone like me. Well, what does like you look like on the job? Why do you need someone who's a good communicator? Oh, they've got to make presentations to the senior board. Uh, 
What does results-oriented look like? Well, they got to make quota in six months. Okay, let's define it as outcomes. So part of it is hiring managers don't have a scorecard to make the assessment. That's why the performance profile is very, very helpful up front. You said, okay, now I know what I'm looking for. And everybody in the hiring team knows what we're looking for. So that's very helpful to get at least agreement of uh, what's what does a job look like and how do you actually make the metrics, the measures of success. And, and write, write the job ad off that scorecard rather than this sort of job description list of 150 bits of nonsense. Oh, absolutely. I talked to a, a guy yesterday. He asked, we did a preview. He, he's got a small company up in Canada. And he said, Lou, I'd like to just get you I, these a little podcasts, a little program he puts together for companies in the local area. And he said, what do you want to talk about? And I said, well, I'm just looking at your director of sales job here, which is a piece of crap. Um, <laughs> he said, why don't we talk about that? He said, what do you mean it's a piece of crap? I said, yeah, 10 years ago, your featured, here's what he has, his featured benefits, medical and dental care. I said, that's the best you can offer someone? <laughs> And this is like three, and that's it. I said, what about opening up a new territory uh, that's going to increase your sales by 50% and building a team that's going to leverage your new tech, innovative uh, chemical coating technologies? That's something exciting. But feature, dental benefits and medical? Come on. He said, yeah, we should talk. He was embarrassed. He said, yeah, we should talk about that. I said, let's make it a real story about the work itself. Um but that's always what it is. He said, well, I just put something out there so I could start looking at candidates. I said, that's the problem. The people who apply are the people you want to look at. You're just wasting right. your time. Why? The best people, and I don't use the job posting as the primary means. I said, it, hey, candidate, here's a job I think you would like. Let's talk. And I remember one for a, a direct, it was a controller for an entertainment company. I did. I used to do a lot of work with the entertainment industry, Disney and Warner Brothers and company. So I had one client call, and this is probably 10 years ago, and I found a candidate, but I, the title of the posting was Oscar-winning controller, which is pretty corny. Uh, but yeah. then the line said, get out of the numbers and make a difference. And it was a small production company making cartoons, kids, and, it, uh, and he said, uh, if you pull this off, uh, the night of the Emmys, the president will thank you for doing a great job. So it was kind of corny. But I found some people in the entertainment industry I sent them an email and text. I said, take a look at this posting. So it was just a piece of marketing material. It was a great posting, creative, a little bit corny, but it worked. Uh, and I got the right people to respond, but it was a part of a marketing campaign. It wasn't the primary thing. The email was part of it. One person I had a bug three times. Another person gave me from PricewaterhouseCooper, gave me a referral. So that person called instantly. Then they looked at the postings. Yeah, I want to talk to you about this. So you got to look at it. It's a high touch kind of a process that involves marketing. You're trying to get a top A-level talent, top 25%. They already have a good job. They are going to get a counteroffer. If you want to hire that person, and particularly when the demand for talent is greater than the supply, you have to offer them something more than just great benefits and a dental plan. <laughs> I see in the UK often people list the number of holidays that you get, you know, and it's 20, I think it's 21 plus bank holidays. But it's like, that's not a benefit. That's a statutory obligation. Right. Like, and they, like, you could put unlimited holiday, or you could put like eight weeks of holiday, and that might be interesting. But well, that's this other company oh, has man. that. They said, you don't even have to, if you can get all your, I had this one client in the, well, it's UK and the United States. Um, the president is one I, uh, I know very well. He basically says, you, you don't have to even work here. You get all your work done, uh, do whatever you want. 
just get your work done. And he said, so he believes his performance profiles and he, and people find that very attractive. Obviously you have to get your work done. So, uh, but he doesn't keep track of hours. He said, you know, got to get your work done and you have to do it as a team. And most of your work is team based. You got to get work together as a team and you have to get their team to do it. So he only focuses on uh, the outcomes and how the team gets the outcomes is totally up to the team, which is a pretty cool environment. But the performance objectives are not insignificant, but people are excited because they own their job and they own their outcome of the team. So it's a pretty cool situation. So we've talked about marketing and job ads and scorecards, but you mentioned very in passing, you mentioned the the hiring committee and, and debriefing. So not hiring on your own, hiring in pairs, is that? Well, what we have is what's called the quality of hire talent scorecard. And it's based on what I call the hiring formula for success. So let me just give you that and I'll tell you how you implement it. Okay. The hiring formula for success is ability to do the work in relationship to fit is what drives motivation. And because motivation is so important, we square it. That equals success. So ability is all the hard and soft skills, hard skills, technical skills, creative planning skills, soft skills, organizational management, interpersonal communication skills. The fit factors, so it's ability to do the work, hard and soft skills in relationship to fit. Fit has to do with are you motivated to do the work? Can you fit with the culture, fit with the team, uh, fit with the hiring manager? That drives motivation. Turns out hard skills are the easiest to measure. Soft skills, you can measure it, but it's a little bit harder, but the organizational and management skills and communication skills. Uh, but the fit factors are the most important. You can find someone who's totally talented, but if you don't like your boss or you don't like the structure, you're going to be underperform. So the fit factors, it's this relationship of ability in relation to the, the circumstances of the job would drive success. And motivation is the key. If you're not motivated, it doesn't matter how good you are, you're going to get it, not going to get it done. So we have a scorecard that take, breaks all of that out. And we organize the interview around those two questions. You focus on organizational skills. You focus on team skills. You focus on hiring manager fit factors. You focus on decision-making under pace. And then when we debrief, we come back and we share the evidence. We share the evidence, okay. all of those factors. And what's interesting is by sharing the evidence, that's the important piece. And I remember, uh, now this was not exactly the same, but I remember some CFO thought my candidate for a cost manager's job wasn't very effective. And I said, Ed, you didn't even spend more than 15 minutes with him. Yes, he's soft-spoken, but are you aware that this candidate actually implemented exactly the same kind of cost system at a huge automotive manufacturing company and got everybody, the union, the operations people, all agreed to do this? And as a result of that, was offered a job to do it internationally. The only reason he's come to Southern California is because his wife is getting her, her degree, her MD degree at the university, local university. And so you, you didn't like him because he was soft-spoken. You didn't understand that he actually is probably one of the top cost accounts in the country. And he said, well, I, I missed the market now. I'll interview him again. Interviewed him again, went in to spend an hour and a half with him, and he hired another 20 people from us in his company because we had the evidence to do it. And, it's, and that's what needs to be shared. And actually, he learned in that sharing session, and I was – I'm from New York City, so I have no problem pushing back people. Uh, maybe sometimes I overdo it. Uh, but nonetheless, if you can you can never out-yell a hiring manager, but you can out-evidence them with details and facts. And that's what I tell all recruiters and all hiring managers and all people in HR. If you have your facts at hand, 
focus on what people have actually performed in the actual environment and share that in evidence, uh, you'll hire more people and make fewer mistakes. Do you you think anything that's in business is trained as little as how to hire? Yeah, I find it fascinating, Dominic, that people make these huge major hiring decisions with no information. It just makes When you said earlier, it's like a half a million dollar decision and nobody's trained them how to do it. Nobody's trained them how to make it do it well. And in they go and people are quite happy to to do it and get it wrong. They don't have time to do it right. And I think that's, maybe that's cultural, but we haven't, everybody says hiring is number one, but that's just pure talk. (laughs) They haven't decided to implement it. And if you, now if the CFO, chief financial officer said, I'm responsible for hiring, they would have a process. You would have to go through a rigorous analysis of uh, step-by-step how you're going to do it. HR does not seem to, They use indirect methods to assess competency. And I think HR is at fault here. I think they buy into the competency model idea, the PhD idea. No, you're talking about human lives here and you're talking about business decisions that need to be made. And I don't think HR understands that. They don't get promoted because they've implemented business processes. They get promoted because they avoid mistakes and they uh, avoid legal problems. And that to me is not... uh, where hiring should be. So my background has been finance and manufacturing and cost accounting. So I tend to take that and engineering. So I tend to take that more personally. So is, is one of the solutions take hiring out of HR, put it somewhere else? I don't know. <laughs> no, that, no, that's, I think somehow hiring managers need to be held responsible for hiring. They just have to be. And maybe that's part of their performance management system. It's got to be, if hiring is number one, it should be number one in their performance reviews. Okay, how well did you do? You have to, you have just as much responsibility to ensure that person is successful. Uh, in fact, you have number one responsibility. If that, if you have a high turnover, underperformance or low satisfaction, you're going to be dinged and you're not going to get promoted. And until you pass this course and do it a couple of times, you cannot become a director. So now all of a sudden it becomes the response. So I think that's where it should be has to put the responsibility of the hiring manager. Can't get promoted to a management position where you're required to hire until you've certified on the hiring process. So to me, that's important. That works. Yeah. And then even get promoted above that to be managing managers or a bigger, higher, you know, a stronger management position. You have to demonstrate that you're competent. Just have to demonstrate you have to be an engineer to be or an accountant or a marketing person have to demonstrate some, but if you're a manager, uh, now I had this talk with somebody probably a couple of years ago. It was a guy who was just retired, but he was a VP of operations for a big uh, pharmaceutical company. Uh, and we were just chatting at dinner. And I said, the thing I noticed for a good manager is that they take great pride in the success of the people whom they've hired, as opposed to pride in their own individual capabilities. And so I look for that when I'm interviewing candidates. He said, you know, I'm, and you're right. He said, I remember that. It wasn't my first job, but it was after I, and this guy was my 70 or so. He said, I realized that after a while that my first job as a manager, I didn't take pride in that. But after a couple of years, I realized I was, the people I hired, I had more satisfaction from their success and my own success. And then my career just short, um, it became VP operations for a big pharma company that over 17 plants around the world. So, I mean, it was a big level guy, uh, but it was interesting that that was the tipping point 
So I always ask managers who are managers, hey, how, how do you feel? You know, try to see if the person has kind of made that leap to uh, having success in the people whom he or she has hired as opposed to their own personal individual contributor skills. To me, that's a characteristic of a great manager. That's a good tip. Um, the, you were talking about fit. Any thoughts on how we interview for, or, or screen for cultural fit? Yes. Uh, we could talk a long time. About that. Uh, <laughs> but I think within cultural fit, when you think about it, no matter what your company is, fast pace, intense, slow pace, high levels of bureaucracy, and those are certainly characteristics of culture. The hiring manager is the dominant face of your company culture. And actually, I'm a recruiter today because I hated my hiring manager many years ago. I was on a very good career track with a company, probably equivalent today to about $100 million in sales. And I was running a small a business unit for that company. Uh, and, I, and I was 32 years old, big company, 300 people, uh, was on a fast track. People told me I was going to be a division president of a bigger division. So I was, But I hated the group president. Every third week, he came down and thought I was the biggest screw-up in the world. And every sixth week, I quit. Uh, quit four times, and I had to talk to the chairman of the company and the CEO of the company, and they said, don't quit. It was the smallest Fortune 500 company. It was the 499th company at the time. Uh, but I just quit. I said, screw it. I was starting to use these recruiters, and I said, I'll just become a recruiter. Um, my wife supported that decision. I thought I would, if it didn't make it, I'd find another job. Um, but I became a recruiter. Uh, so if I had to say the issue that I always look at, and if I even look at when we made 1,500 placements, the, the real problem with people underperformed, whether it was a 75 or 10, 7 or 8% of people who left or the other 10 or 15% who stayed but weren't great, uh, it was the fit with the hiring manager. So we really focus a lot on what we call managerial fit, which represents 50% of cultural fit. And there are some managers who are delegators, some managers who are micromanagers, some managers who are hands-off. So we really kind of, and this has to do with Blanchard's um, uh, situational leadership. We really look at what kind of manager is this person and what kind of leadership style does the candidate need. Hopefully we find managers that are flexible and candidates who are flexible. But if we find a micromanager, we got to find somebody who can deal with that. If we find a manager who's hands-off, uh, we got to find candidate who doesn't need any direction. So that's part of it. The other part is pace. What's the intensity of the decision? What's the environment like? What's the decision-making process like? And we look for fit. Has candidates Have candidates survived and thrived in those kinds of situations? So as we ask these questions about, uh, tell us about work you've done, it's your biggest success related to this. We ask, what was the pace like? What was the decision-making like? Uh, so we start digging into those context or environmental factors and fit factors to make sure there's a fit there. Absolutely critical. They're the ones, no matter how weak, it's easy to determine if someone's a good person. It's not easy to determine if someone's going to fit in that circumstance and that job and be successful over the course of the year and uh, year one and beyond. Yeah. I made some bad hires. And when I look back and thought about it, they, they weren't bad people. They were skillful people. But so often that sort of situational success, I wasn't aware that I had to screen for that, for that success. And in fact, you know, there were sales directors who I'd hired 
and and what they'd done is they'd worked they'd been successful in companies that had process and i was hiring them into company with no process and what they hadn't done is ever created a process and so just they, they you know they couldn't they they could only implement what they'd learnt, what they knew before but they hadn't built it no that's why i say that's the process with the level of sophistication of what you're trying to do right yeah okay fab so retirement what's a good age to retire do you reckon I, that's it. I don't know. I mean, I, uh, I'll be 75 next week. Uh, I'm definitely slowing down a little bit, mainly because, number one, I get tired easier, so I have to be forced to. But intellectually, I actually like what I do. So that keeps me satisfied, but I just can't do it as long. There's other activities that I also want to do. So I think it's up to the most people, and I've got a lot of friends who have retired. Uh, they retired because they didn't like their jobs. So I'd say, so they forced to retire and they didn't like their work. Um, so then you say, okay, I'm retiring because to get away from something. I actually like what I do. I just can't do it. And I don't want to do it as long as I used to do it. So I have other activities that keep me busy. And I talked to a friend of mine this morning. We went to, I went to elementary school together. So he's also, in fact, it was his birthday, but it was pure coincidental. I called him. Um, but he said, I, and he's got a little development company in New York City area. We built buildings and uh, shopping centers. Uh, he says, I just liked it. He said, I even like talking to people I don't like. It just keeps me busy. I don't want to do stuff that I don't like to do. Now, he's working harder than I am. but So I don't know that there's a perfect age. I think the age is that uh, you do it because you're leaving something. And the guys that I know, my good friends now, they hated their work. I mean, they said, I can't wait till I retire. I mean, I remember 20 years ago, I can't wait to retire. I can't I'm retire early. Well, that's a crappy way to live a life. Uh, and they're sat one guy is totally satisfied. Yeah, they find stuff to do. But to me, that's not maybe you have to do it, but you got to find something else you like to do. So I'm sorry I can't answer that question. No, no, the, no, you answered the yeah, no, that, that's a perfect answer for me. I, I sometimes talk to people who are saying, I'm going to sell my business. And I say, what are you going to do? And they're like, what do you mean? Like, well, you know, it, it currently takes up most of your week. If you had more money and you had nothing else to do, what would you do? And then some of them say, well, I'd start another business. It's like, man, have you worked in a startup? <laughs> why don't you just keep this one? Why go? Why start another one? Yeah, it's not the money. Once you have enough money, then it's where do you find satisfaction in doing work you want to do? Yeah, fab. Luke, what is it that you now know that you wish you'd known earlier? Yeah, you told me you were going to ask me that question. Um, <laughs> I don't know that I would have done what I did here. I left, and I said the reason I left industry is because I hated my boss. Was that the right decision? And I still don't know that. But my wife supported in doing what I do. I was successful at doing what I do. If it wasn't for leaving that, I probably would have been in a company and been satisfied and dissatisfied and uh, pushed the envelope on certain things. So I think I tend to be very outspoken. I tend to be in your face from New York, worked in manufacturing. I probably wouldn't have been as outspoken as direct, but I don't know that I could take the New Yorker out of the boy. So, uh, so I don't know that I could have changed. It just turns out that in this case, I can put myself in an environment that. Uh, allows me to do what I want to do. And maybe that's it. Put yourself in an environment that allows you to do yourself what you want to do. But I don't know that everyone has that choice. So I think environmental needs, economic needs, family needs don't allow people to do everything they want to do. And so that's where reality meets uh, 
theory. So you just can't do everything you want, even if you know what you want to do. So I'm sure for an answer that probably evasive and ineffective. But, <laughs> no, no. but it's what's interesting. I found myself uh, reframing a problem with a client last week. And I said, you know, are you really sure this is, you, you know, it was an issue where they decided they just couldn't stick their boss anymore. And so they were, you know, thinking about a big change. And I said, look, you know, how long is he going to be there? Can you not, you know, just, you know, are you jumping too quickly? I mean, it sounds like you took a lot of aggro off him for a long time before you left. But so often people do that. They, they, uh, they jump ship and they don't, you know. Well, I pushed back. I mean, he, he, he and I, we clashed every single week, every month. I mean, again, I didn't take a lot of crap, uh, but that's my personal background. And maybe, I don't know if good or bad, but it certainly has got me in trouble. I put my foot in the mouth a lot and been brought to the woodshed a number of times for being too aggressive. So I don't know what the right answer is. <laughs> what, um, what book should people read? What's, what's your book is Performance Hiring. No, I have the fourth edition of Hire With Your Head coming out. In, okay. Uh, that's one book. That That's my – and it's a good book. It tells you how to hire people. Is it a great book? I don't know. It's If you want to hire people, it's a, it's a good enough book, and you should buy it, and you'll be happy. <laughs> it'll be the best point of art. But is, is it a great book? No, it's a good book. Um, and I'm proud of it, but it's not any – it isn't the greatest book in the world by any means. On the other hand, the book that I really feel is the most important book I ever read is Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Outstanding People. And I found that, and I found it nearly, whenever it came out, mid-80s, read that and just fell in love with it, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I, as I looked at those habits, understanding of the seven things that people need to do to be successful, it just seems to be right on. And indirectly, I probably interviewed for those habits when I interview candidates. Didn't know I was doing it, but it's planning ahead, uh, understanding what people need and trying to, before you try to present your own point of view. It's just a phenomenal book that every person should own. And I and I went to Stephen Covey. They almost bought our company, but it, it never happened. But I just so impressed with the book and I still advise that everyone should read that book. It should be the Bible of life. And what else you got? Any others? Well, the other ones are more technical, like spin selling. If you're in sales, it's solution selling, those kinds of books, certainly. Uh, but in general, no, everyone's got their own point of view and uh, their own style. To me, that's a universal. The other one is a universal book, though. Luke, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you for sharing your advice. I, you, you said at the beginning that the war on talent, and so often I, I hear people say that, and I think, you're so bad at recruitment, though. I wouldn't want to be in a foxhole with you. You know, we'd be we'd be dead within thirty seconds if this really was a war. Right. Um, you know, you're bringing a knife to a you're bringing a knife to a gunfight, and you right. just haven't got your shit together. So, thank you for sharing your your thoughts and your experience. I think there's some absolute nuggets in there. Great. Thank you very much for having me, Dominic. Hopefully, it was helpful. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. 
There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.